Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you guys are returning, then welcome back. We appreciate your continued support. And if you are brand new to the show, then a special welcome to you. Thank you for clicking on this episode, um, and we hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, make sure to check out the rest of our episodes because we think um, we have a lot of valuable content on there. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to stay in the loop. With all updates, go follow us on all our social media and whatever. But with that out of the way, we have a very important episode today. So sleep is one of those topics that is kind of just everyone knows it. Everyone sleeps. You kind of have to sleep. And I've been actually been trying to get someone to talk about sleep on this podcast pretty much since its inception about a year ago. And it's just been very difficult to reach someone. And today we didn't just reach someone. We reached someone who's like the king of sleep, essentially. And uh, sometimes on this podcast, I get guests that I really don't know how I land them on the show. They're like way over my head. But uh, I'm really grateful for today's guest. But um, before we get into there, let's hit our intro and then we'll get right to this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. All right. So like I said, today we have a very special guest. This is uh, Dr. Chris Winter. And he isn't just um, some guy who talks about sleep. He's like the sleep guru. And he's a board certified in neurology and sleep medicine and is actually on the advisory board for the American Sleep Association. He's the author of two books, The Sleep Solution and The Rest of the Child, um, which I will say and admit I haven't read yet. I haven't had the time intern year yet, but I will get to them. They're on my list. So I'll get to there. Um, he's also a well-renowned speaker and consultant with major companies as well as major league sports, um, a lot within the baseball sphere. Um, he owns his own practice in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he focuses on sleep and athletic performance with his um, his own research. And he is a triathlete himself. So he has a lot going for him, but we're going to let him uh, continue on this podcast and just welcome to the show. Raghav, I appreciate that. Uh, I have not done a triathlon in several years, so something needs to be updated. So I'm glad oh. you mentioned that. But I, I like them. I just don't have a whole lot of time. I've done some Spartan races in between there, but but yeah, I think there we it's go. to call me a triathlete. Well, at least it shows that I do my research, right? It says they're on your, I think it's your uh, Sleep Association website. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you. I appreciate it. I really appreciate having me <laughs> and uh, what a great job you do with your podcast. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. So getting right into it, um, I guess the first thing is how did you get interested in sleep medicine and kind of what do you do on a day-to-day basis as both a sleep medicine specialist and a neurologist? Yeah, so I got interested um, when I went to my undergraduate uh, program. So I kind of wanted to be a doctor, you know, growing up. I like drawing pictures of the heart and exploring, learning the Latin name for muscles and stuff like that. I thought it was so cool. Um, so when I got to my undergraduate program at the University of Virginia, I was just talking to my biology advisor, you know, the guy you meet with to kind of guide you as you go through your your college curriculum. And he said, you should you talk to some doctors. There's a book of doctors that put little ads for people they want help, you know, to help them with research. And I was just kind of looking through the book and saw this guy, Paul Surratt, who ran the sleep center at the University of Virginia and wanted some help with some research he was doing. And 
started working for him and and just never left the field. You kind of it was never the plan to be a sleep doctor. It was just kind of like this is the plan to get on a few papers and maybe boost my resume for medical school or something. And just at every turn, I just kept getting more work or more exposure. So I went to medical school at Emory and worked with those guys down there, Don Blauwes and Dave Rye. And it was just so nice and the field was so new and exciting that I never made the decision to actually leave it. And so here we are. And so my day-to-day practice, I am a neurologist, but I really just see adults and children who have sleep problems and, and deal with those. For sure. Uh, I feel like that story is kind of similar to mine. So for those of you guys who've been uh, listening to this podcast, you'll know I'm going into physical medicine and rehab. So I actually found out about it when I was an undergrad as well, because my interest in just like fitness and all those kinds of things. So the first physician I shadowed was a physiatrist, which is a uh, PM&R doctor. And it just kind of continued through there. <laughs> I haven't left it and we're just going to continue on. You know, sometimes I, I talk a lot about this. I, I think that mentors are really important. You know, it doesn't always have to show you what you love. It could be, you know, you could have worked with him and thought, oh, I really didn't like this. Mm-hmm. But when I was in medical school, I worked with a lot of psychiatrists and I liked psychiatry, but one of them said, you know, the way you show interest in this, you might enjoy neurology, which was not something we did early on in medical school, but I made a decision to swap out one elective for the other. And so I just think that if you're listening to this and you're interested in medicine or whatever your field is, find somebody to shadow. I think it's it's so good. And a lot of the people that have come to work in my clinic or shadow have gone on to do stuff in sleep, which always makes you feel really good. So that'll be your job, Raghav, is to you know get some people to shadow you as you move <laughs> in your career. And I guess as you convince a lot of people to do what you do. For sure. I, the role of mentors has been cr- uh, critical in my life and it's been in a lot of others. I think that that's kind of one of the ways that we give back in medicine is that we always have our mentors. And once we get to the position where we're able to mentor someone else, we do that. Um, so I'll definitely be doing that. But um, going on with preventive medicine, sleep, nutrition and exercise are kind of like the triad that everyone knows is kind of quote unquote prevention. Um, we all talk about nutrition and exercise, but no one really talks about sleep because everyone just thinks, all right, I'm going to hit the hay. I'm going to get in bed. I'm going to fall asleep and that's all I have to do about it. So in that context, kind of um, as a sleep medicine doctor and as a neurologist, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah, I think about those things a lot. I, I, I sometimes think of them in terms of the fourth being some sort of mental, you know, mental wellness, uh, uh, resiliency, meditation, mindfulness. I think you could throw that in as the fourth thing too. But yeah, it's like a three. It's a it's a three legged stool, you know. And if if you're big in exercise and you eat great, but you don't really pay attention to your sleep, I'm not sure the other two things matter that much. And I think you can take all, you know, each one of them out and it really falls apart. And you know, I'm not a huge sports fan. I don't watch a lot of sports and I'm not kind of crazy about the whole sport. I was, was, I was little, but as you get older, you just kind of, in fact, it was medical school. I think I just kind of lost all communication with the outside world. And like, <laughs> you woke up, you're like, oh my gosh, nobody on my team that I used to like plays there anymore. So, but, but one of the things I do like about athletics is it proves that point time and time again. I, I think there's only so far you can go in being elite at anything if you're ignoring one of those three pillars. And so to me, preventative medicine means doing what you can control to lead your healthiest life. And um, 
you know, it's amazing to me. I think a lot about, I don't know if you're familiar with, if you watch 60 Minutes, but they've done a couple shows on a, a study that's going on. I think it's Stanford where they're looking at individuals who have lived beyond the age of 100 and they check in with them like every six months and give them mental tests and talk to them and find out how they're doing and try to get the sense of why are these people able to live mm. past 100 and you know, one of the things that's very common to them is that they really prioritize sleep. And if you look at the elite athletes that are in within an organization, you know, my kids would always, when I would come home from some team, they'd be like, oh my God, did you meet that person, that superstar? And often I was like, no, we didn't, we didn't really talk because the team felt like he or she really didn't have any problems with sleep and always seemed to be well-rested and never mm-hmm. complained about their sleep. And so... I don't think that's an accident. I think that if you want to be elite in anything or be healthy, you know, to your healthiest, you, you've got to pay attention to those three things. And really, you can't put anything above them. And sleep, you know, nobody's going to say, I've got a lot of work to do. I've got to sacrifice eating to do it. I mean, most of the time you could sit there and eat some bad food while you typed up your report or worked on your project. <laughs> Man, sleep is an easy one to get rid of um, and, and sacrifice in a big way. I guess exercise could be too. Um, but we just really can't make, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we making time for? And is it worth giving up one of those three pillars? And that's actually one of the questions I'll ask you later on. But first, I have a real quick question. And that's a clarification, I guess, is do you still like do you currently not enjoy sports or watching sports or keep up? Because that's kind of surprising to me because you're so involved in so many sports teams into athletic performance, but you're not interested in sports yourself. Is that is that what you're saying? A couple things. Do I do not enjoy watching the teams I work for play like my I work for the Dodgers and the Red Sox and I still feel a little PTSD from the AL and the NL playoffs because um, I really wanted the Dodgers to beat the Astros mm-hmm. or the Braves, and I really wanted the Red Sox, really wanted the Red Sox to beat the Astros. So I just don't get a lot of enjoyment of the stress of the situation. I just would rather be told, hey, they won or they lost. I get mm-hmm. a lot more enjoyment of watching two teams play that I have no stay in or whatever. I do enjoy watching sports. In fact, I mean, I think that there's nothing really better than to go to a baseball game and you get your popcorn or your, you know, soda water or whatever. And then you walk up the little ramp and it's just this perfect, (laughs) perfectly groomed, anal retentive field. Like every little thing is in place and it's just a beautiful day and you sit there and you eat your hot dog and just relax. (laughs) And I get really mad when they talk about wanting to speed up baseball games because when I pay for the parking and drive there and get all the kids there. Like I want it to last 12 hours. Like I don't want to go anywhere. So, (laughs) um, but no, like I don't make a lot of efforts to watch a lot of sports. I just, it's not that I don't like them. It's just different priorities kind of creep into your life as you get older. But I've got plenty of friends who still, I went to the university of Virginia. They wear like the khakis with the little V and sabers Mm -hmm. all over them. And they Mm -hmm. just live and die by UVA football. But that, that, that's, that's sort of passed me by, I think, a little yeah. bit. Sorry for that little but, like, uh, no, no, it's a funny. I just, I just I had to ask about it a lot, actually. I, you know, but it does surprise people that I'm not some rabid fan. In fact, 
there've been many times where I've come back from a team and my kids would be like, oh, did you meet that person? He was the MVP last year. And I'm like, I don't know if I met him or not. I don't remember that name. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think over time, teams have kind of like, it's sort of like, oh, he's here because he really wants to help us sleep. He's not here because he needs you know, a jersey with his name on it or something like that. Yeah. So, anyway. Sure. So getting back to sleep then, um, one of the, I guess, biggest problems with sleep is obviously sleep disorders because that's kind of the entire field. But when sleeping disorders develop, you don't really understand how they happen, or I guess most people don't understand how they happen. For example, if you look at like diabetes, you could think of insulin resistance. If you think of obesity, you think of a uh, appetite dysregulation and all these kinds of things. But how do sleep disorders develop? Slowly, uh, generally. I mean, they're sort of the opposite of the myocardial infarction, right? I mean, and what's interesting is just to watch the resiliency of somebody deal with it. You know, it's like sleep problems are often present for years before somebody finally falls asleep on the wheel of a car and drives into a telephone pole. So, I mean, and sleep disorders are so different and vast. You know, how does restless leg develop? Well, it probably starts, you know, before you were born genetically. Do you have something wrong with dopamine synthesis in your body? And maybe you're sharing that with other relatives in your family. Um, had some growing pains as a kid, never really paid much attention to it until as you've gotten older in your 30s or 40s, you just have this irresistible urge to move. It's hard to sit still in bed. You can't wait to go to the dentist and have them put that lead apron on you because that pressure on your body feels really good. And you finally go to your doctor and say, I'm just so tired. I just don't really have the energy like I used to. And hopefully the doctor doesn't pat you on the head and say something helpful like, well, that's getting old for you, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, versus is like sleep apnea, which can be so multifaceted in terms of you're a kid born with large tonsils. You're somebody who during COVID just wasn't able to exercise and eat the way you used to. The stress of the situation has caused you to put on 30 pounds. And now your partner says, you're snoring really loudly. And I hear you stop breathing sometimes during the night. It's really upsetting to me. Um, versus something like narcolepsy, which um, is probably inherited, but also can be acquired as well too, where you're not making a certain chemical in your brain to the level where you need to to stay awake properly during the day. And then insomnia is really its own beast. You know, I think most people who develop issues with falling asleep or staying asleep are sort of predisposed to it. They're type A, successful, driven, detail-oriented people that have had some sort of precipitating event happen in their life, the divorce, the terrible grade on a pathophysiology exam or a bad review on your- Can relate to that one. Yeah, exactly, me too. <laughs> uh, big time. Um, that was a shocker, in fact. Um, hey, wait a minute. You didn't get the memo. I only make A's and B's. Uh, <laughs> and nobody got that when I got to medical school. Oh, I can make C's. Oh, I didn't know I was capable of that. I guess I am. Um, so, you know, those things, you know, tend to have some sort of precipitant. And then based upon the care you're getting and the advice and the information you're getting, can either be a very quick solution to the problem or it can be the beginning of years of misery. So that's one of the things I really like about sleep is it's quite diverse. I mean, I imagine PMNR as well too. Like you're here rehabilitating something. It could be a stroke. It could be a bad break from an automobile accident. It could be all kinds of, you know, it could be a genetic disorder that's causing you to lose muscle mass in your calves and lower extremities very quickly. So I, I like that diversity. Um, and, and, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, they, they come from all over the place. 
For sure. And then I like that you brought up the uh, primary care physician because um, we tend to do that a lot in this podcast because the primary care physician is like the quarterback of the entire healthcare system. They kind of guide care wherever it needs to go. But before it gets to a primary care physician, a individual or patient, I guess, has to identify that something is incorrect for them to go to the primary care physician. And a lot of times people do experience fatigue and they don't know why they just carry on with their lives. Um, how do people know whether or not they should get worked up for a sleeping disorder? And if they do go to a primary care that kind of um, nudges them saying, haha, that's getting old, like you were saying, then how do they kind of navigate that situation as well? Yeah. Right before I, I jumped on here, as you can see, I was, I was running and I was thinking to myself as I ran, how wonderful it would be to have an hour in front of every primary care doctor in this country. I mean, it's like a dream of mine that mm -hmm. they said, we got them all together in this one massive auditorium and we, we would like you to come and talk about whatever you'd like. And because I was talking, was, I was seeing a patient today who was struggling with insomnia and was on tizanidine. I said, do you have a lot of muscle spasms or pain? No, they, they said it was a treatment for insomnia. So it just gets old sometimes because I think that your, your question is an important one how long does it take for the patient to say, I have a problem and talk to a doctor about it? And it's interesting because my guess is that if you could measure that, if we call that something, the Rogov factor, the Rogov factor is <laughs> the time it takes from a presentation of a problem to when you seek help for it. Um, uh, blood squirting out of your ear has got a Rogov coefficient of 0.1 <laughs> seconds. You know, like as soon as that happens, you're not- You're going, you're going, you're going somewhere, right? Yeah, you're not trying to find the CVS remedy for that. I think sleep problems would have a very long Rogoff coefficient because number one, I, I'm not sure that everybody thinks that there are that there's real sleep expertise out there. I mean, a lot of patients are surprised. I'm a neurologist that specializes in sleep. I didn't know that was a thing. Number two, I do think that um, within the United States and certain pockets or cultures or families. Talking about feeling tired or feeling sleepy is kind of weak. You know, it, it, you see that a lot in professional sports. Like, uh, you know, hey, coach, I'm pretty tired today. I'll suck it up. You know, get some coffee in you and get out there and shut up. I don't want to hear about that. Like, first to the first, first here in the morning, last to leave, sleep on a cot. Like, it's almost like a military mentality, mm -hmm. you know? So I think that nobody wants to be judged. Nobody knows that there's expertise out there. And when you finally break down and say to your primary care doctor, hey, I'm something's going on with my sleep that I'm concerned concerned about, there's a very good chance that the person you're speaking to really has absolutely no training in sleep. So you're going to be as successful with him as you're going to be with me delivering your baby or removing that aneurysm from your you know, middle cerebral artery. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I am a doctor, but man, you don't want me mucking around in your brain like that. Like that's, that's a recipe for disaster. So, um, and so what happens is instead of a lot of doctors saying, oh, well, you know, this is an important thing we need to talk about, but let's get you pointed to, you know, in the direction of somebody who can help you a bit better than I can, it becomes you know, kind of bad medicine. I mean, look at Michael Jackson. My God, real doctors were giving him propofol, coming to his house and giving him propofol because he quote unquote couldn't sleep, which is not a physiologically it's not physiologically possible not to sleep. So there's a lot of barriers between the patient recognizing that they have a problem and getting truly getting the help that they need. 
which is unfortunate because it's not like sleep is some obscure little thing. It's not, you know, I don't know, some rare genetic disorder that you only see in sort of pockets of, you know, some with, you know, kind of isolated population. It's sleep problems. I mean, I think of the seven most common primary care complaints, I can't sleep and I'm tired or fatigued are two of the top seven. So I'm not sure why there's such a disconnect between that. I mean, I don't know what you got in medical school. We got an hour long lecture on sleep. That was it. Four years, one hour. Yeah, so I it's think it's kind of a weird proportional sort of thing. Like for sure. I think our training just focuses mostly on like the uh pathophys of it, I guess. Yeah. Or not necessarily even. It just talks about this is insomnia, this is kind of what you do for it, and that's it. You yeah. don't really discuss too much more. So maybe like you said, an hour or so. Well, um, I'm older than you are, so maybe it's gotten better. <laughs> you know, maybe it's two hours now or so we we've no, this, you know. No, there's just everything else just has expanded so much more. We have to learn so much more about every single other disease out there. So Yeah. Um probably right. Yeah, you talked about fatigue a little bit as an effect of not getting enough sleep. And before we move on, I know this wasn't the question in the outline that I sent you previously, but I think it's important to like uh, clarify this real quickly. Um, and obviously, this could end up being an hour of itself. But I just want to ask you kind of what are the effects of poor sleep and not getting enough sleep? Man, they are endless. And they they hurt you both in the short term and the long term, I think. And, and I think the short term is easier to deal with. I mean, I think most people know if I stay up all night to work on this project, I'm going to have a difficult day tomorrow. Um, so the short term are usually not too hard because I think most people can can deal in that currency. Where they have trouble dealing with is a 20-year-old who's a fantastic athletic specimen who says to me, look, as long as I get my three or four hours, I'm fine. No, you're not. I mean, and if you're defining fine by your ability to beat other people in basketball, yeah, maybe you can. But number one, wouldn't it be awesome if 10 years from now you could still beat people in basketball? Because I'm worried that if you don't take care of your sleep, that is not going to be the, 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 that's not going to be the case. And what we really see over a long period of time of poor sleep or sleep deprivation is massive impacts on all of our organ systems. You want to look young, sleep will help you do that. Good quality sleep will help you do it. You want your heart to work well, you don't want to have a heart attack or a stroke, make sure you get an adequate amount of sleep. Inflammatory diseases, rheumatological disorders almost go hand in hand with poor sleep. And the older thought was, oh, well, you developed rheumatoid arthritis and that's the reason why you don't sleep well. Very well, maybe the opposite, that the poor sleep quality over a long period of time has created these other issues. Weight problems, you mentioned diabetes earlier in the show, cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. Mood disturbances are massive when we don't get enough sleep, anxiety and depression. So, I mean, I can't really think of, I've never been asked, does sleep affect X? And me say, oh, no, no, it actually has no, no impact <laughs> on that at all. You're okay with that. I mean, Teeth whiteness, maybe? I don't know. Like, I've never heard anything that links. And it was interesting. You said at the beginning of the show, I really like to be evidence-based. And so, um, yeah, I'm not aware of how sleep affects the whiteness of our teeth. But outside of that, <laughs> man, it is it is all. And then the other interesting thing is even things like growth, you know, in children, both of my, I have three children and this is, I'm going to, I'm going to put this on your show just because I want to, I want to claim credit for it when it proves to be a real thing. So both my kids 
when the pandemic happened, we're in high school. My son, one son was a senior, one was a, a sophomore. And pandemic happened. The senior immediately stopped getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go swim every day of his life. And his school was delayed. So he went from getting up at five to getting up at like 945 for his first class. My other son was a rower. He stopped immediately too and had the same situation. Both of them grew tremendously during the the pandemic. Now, you could say it's two people and maybe they were going to grow anyway during that time. I have a strong suspicion that because of the extra sleep and because of the extra deep sleep that they were getting, um, they had extra growth hormone secretion. And with growth hormone secretion, as we're we're, we're adults, creates recovery. In kids, it creates growth. And so I'm going to be really interested to see five years from now if pediatricians look back and say, wow, there was a weird little average spike in people's growth during that time. So whatever you want out of your health and your life, you're going to get more of it if you if you really prioritize sleep. Yeah. And preparing for this episode, I listened to uh, you on uh, Mark Bell's podcast. And I remember you mentioning that, which is why I added that question later on in this outline. But before we get there, I'm going to I'm going to take a step back, going back to kind of uh, the primary care part and uh, people recognizing their uh, sleep disorders. Um, one of the other things that I also mentioned previously when we were starting is kind of uh, misinformation and all those kind of pseudoscientific articles that people can find online. And a lot of times when people experience fatigue, the first thing they find after a quick Google search, why am I fatigued? is things like hormonal dysregulation. My thyroid is out of whack. My adrenals are out of whack, all of these kinds of things. So is that a reasonable cause for fatigue or is it usually the sleep? Yeah. I mean, I like to differentiate fatigue from sleepiness. I think it's a really helpful tool for a patient. I think it's a helpful tool for a provider, for a parent. Because we say, man, I'm tired. You know, I, I'm going to do this podcast. I'm going to sit down and watch some Bachelorette because I'm tired today. <laughs> you know, like that. So when you say tired, what do you mean? Do you mean fatigued? Like you've been running a lot today and lifting a lot of weights. And now your body just says, I don't want to run or lift anymore. Or are you saying, no, 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 it's, I've got plenty of energy. I just can barely stay awake. Like if I, I feel like if I got on a bench and started lifting weights, I might fall asleep. I'm so sleepy. And I think that when you start to separate out fatigue and sleepiness, I think that the things that you mentioned are probably much more likely to cause a sense of fatigue in people than they are sleepiness. And what's interesting is those are easy signals to get crossed. So you can imagine being a patient that has some sort of underlying cause of fatigue. Let's say that they have a tick-borne illness that's not been diagnosed yet. So you're the mother of a kid and the kid says, I'm tired all the time, I'm tired all the time. So one thing you might be inclined to do or have your kid do is say, hey, wait, listen, you're always so tired. Let's get you in bed early. Let's get you in bed at nine o'clock because maybe if you can get some more sleep, you won't be so tired all the time. And then what happens is the individual goes to bed at nine o'clock. They're not really sleepy. They're fatigued. And so now they're just sitting there unable to fall asleep because they used to go to bed at 11. Now they're going to bed at nine. And so now they're really panicked. Oh my God, I can't sleep. It takes me two hours to fall asleep. Right. Because sleepiness was never the problem. So 
I have no idea what adrenal fatigue is, if that's even a real thing or not. It, it, it's not. Yeah, I don't I don't think that it is either. It's, you know, well, I checked my cortisol. It was high. Well, sure it is because you're anxious as hell about your adrenal fatigue. So anyway, so I, I think there are real causes for fatigue, of course. In fact, I've got a slide in a presentation I gave yesterday that's got a cause of fatigue for every letter of the alphabet. I think where we run into trouble is where we don't get off sleep as a cause for the fatigue. It's like, it's got to be my sleep. So I'll go to bed early. I buy a new mattress, got these new Tom Brady pajamas, got the whole situation going on and I'm still fatigued. We need to sometimes step back and say, okay, well maybe the sleep is okay. Maybe it's your B12 deficiency or something like that. You know, so I think sleep is always a good thing to put in that fatigue differential, but understand that fatigue is, is not nearly as a good indicator of sleep disturbances as excessive sleepiness is. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. And going along with what you're saying, I think the uh, discussion um, about fatigue versus sleepiness also is something that the primary care can address. And if every primary care does get some sort of training in sleep, I think that'd be hugely beneficial because then they can kind of um, quarterback it, whether it needs to go to an endocrinologist. We had on uh, Dr. Carl Nadolsky. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but we had him talk about um, kind of the endocrine aspect of fatigue. And he was mentioning how a lot of that ends up just being sleep. So we can have the primary care kind of quarterback that. But one of the other things that we've been talking about, kind of a sub text to all of this is that we live in somewhat of a hustle culture, quote unquote, where people glorify not sleeping. They glorify working, whether it's an athlete who's getting up in the wee hours in the morning. You have these famous stories of like Kobe Bryant being at the gym at 3 a.m. working out. You have these stories of uh, just athletes doing some crazy things, not sleeping, just training. And then you also have stories of like entrepreneurs who are like grind, grind, grind. They work until like 3 a.m., go to bed, wake up at 6, whatever, that kind of thing. So the idea there is the sleep debt. We know that you obviously need a set amount of sleep that's been well proven in literature. I don't think you need to discuss that on this podcast, kind of like a basic level. But uh, we do want to talk about the sleep debt. Is that something that you can make up or is that point the damage done? Yeah, I think you can. And I'll qualify that. And I wrote about this in my in my new book, The Rested Child, just because I think it's an interesting topic. And I can promise you, if you have 10 sleep doctors on your podcast, um, they might give you two different answers. I, I think the best answer though, and it's evidence-based, is that you can, but it's going to be in sort of a short term. And so I, I like a particular study that I saw that basically indicated that, look, um, individuals who slept you know, eight hours a night every night versus individuals who slept an average of eight hours a week, meaning that they started Sunday off having to accumulate 56 hours, you know, between that Sunday and the next Sunday. So if they had a bad Tuesday night, as long as they took a little nap and slept in a little bit on Wednesday, they were okay. And they found that people who got 56 hours a week, even if it wasn't a perfect seven a night, or I'm sorry, eight a night, lived just as long as the people who slept the perfect eight hours every night. I don't think humans were designed to have a perfect eight hours of sleep every night, a perfect 
you know, three meals or five meals every day. I think we were designed with a certain built-in resiliency to miss a lunch if we have to. It's not ideal, but if something prevents you from eating lunch, you're on a plane and they don't serve any food or something like that, you're going to be okay. You just want to be aware of the fact that I kind of missed lunch today, so I'm going to make sure I make up and get the right nutrients and nutrition in my body that I need. Hydration, the same thing. You know, we Mm -hmm. can... You know, your urine's a little yellow. Let's 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 pick up the the the, the hydration and, and balance that mm-hmm. out. So I always tell people, look, you've got a seven you've got a seven day credit card, and once you've determined how much sleep you need as an individual on a nightly basis, multiply that by seven. That's what I need you to accumulate every week. And so, if tonight's bad and you run up a little balance on your credit card, you don't have to pay any interest charges or any fees for seven days. But if seven days pass and you haven't you haven't made that up, then I think that's where the damage starts. And again, that seven's an arbitrary number, but I do think we have some degree of ability to pay back a debt. Do I think I can pay back the debt that I accumulated in medical school residency fellowship? No, I don't. And my guess is my life will be shorter to some degree because of it. I mean, I don't know if it's hours shorter, days shorter, weeks, months. I have no idea, but I do think that what I did in residency was harmful. I mean, we, we had Q2 call when I was a chief in in my, my chief year, they outlawed it and made, you had to be Q3 or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember thinking I was really good at it, but it felt harmful. In fact, you know, my kids look at pictures of me from medical school. They're like, Oh God, you look really ill. And I do. I mean, I think I I feel healthier and look healthier now than I did when I was in my early thirties. And I think that's because of that, that grind of that situation is not something any human should do for a long period of time. Sure. I will say that I think in medical school, it has gotten a lot better. Students aren't expected to stay there like 24 hours a day anymore. And even in residency, um, I know even a lot of like the more intense specialties, like um, your surgeries of the world and all those kinds of things, those are getting better as well. They don't have as crazy call. That's another reason they went to physical medicine rehab. They do value lifestyle and being healthy as a physician yourself. So that was always kind of a dirty thought back when I was in medical school, like, you know, saying, well, I'd like to go into dermatology because it's a good lifestyle. Like I remember surgeons were like not happy with that kind of answer, you know? So, but I think that it's, it's a, I mean, I talk to my daughter all the time who's interested in medicine, like got to, I mean, medicine's great, but I don't think you can give to your patients your best if you're consumed by your job, I mean, you got to have a little time to take a walk, exercise, be with your family, play the guitar, go fly fishing, whatever you like to do. You'll come to the office on Monday morning much better situated. I mean, it's just not sustainable, some of these careers that people have. I mean, I remember doing my hemonc rotation at the University of Virginia. And I remember being irritated because at three o'clock in the morning, I would go check on somebody's labs and the attending would be there. Like the attending was so invested in that that they didn't trust Chris Winter to check the hematocrit. Like the buck stopped with them. I was kind of like irritated. Like, why am I getting up at three in the morning if you're just going to always be here doing my job? And like, what kind of life? I mean, they looked rough. You know, they're the kind of people that are like 58 years, you know, they're like, they're 38 years old. And they look like they're 58. You know what I mean? Like when they tell you their age, like you're seven years older than I am. This is not what I want to be doing. For my, my, This is the opposite of preventative medicine here. 
Definitely. And you were mentioning kind of the short term effects of uh, sleep disturbance or sleep loss, kind of the 56 hours versus the medical school versus debt. Um, what are the harmful effects of the longer term versus the short term? Is it kind of just what you were mentioning, like the neurocognitive effects or are there differences between like the sleepiness, fatigue versus the longer term effects? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like the things that I was talking about. I mean, there's so many interesting little things that were they're so difficult to investigate but even like the ability to read somebody's emotions or uh, control your own sort of uh, irritabilities and, and things of that nature become we become much less risk averse and those are tough things have you said hey Chris how risk averse were you today I'd be like I don't know. I don't think I was any more or less risk averse today than I was yesterday, even though um, I had a difficult night last night because of some travel. Um, But I do remember like in residency at times coming home and my wife saying, if you're going to act like this, nobody wants you here. Just go back to the hospital. And I remember thinking, I don't really know what I'm, I'm not arguing with you that I'm being a jerk or being difficult, but I don't feel it. Mm-hmm. And it always reminds me of people talking about intoxication versus sleep deprivation. And one of the bigger differences is when somebody's intoxicated, they know it. They're like, oh, God, I've drank too much tonight. But I think if I just really focus and drive really slowly, I can make it home without hurting myself <laughs> or other people. Like there's a thought process that's uh-huh. sort of, it might be impaired or not linear, but nobody's like, I drove drunk and I had no idea that I was impaired. Like they rarely say that. What's interesting about sleep deprivation is you can have equal amounts of impairment, maybe more, but people don't feel impaired. And, you know, in that moment when my wife said that to me, I didn't feel irritable or grumpy. I felt fine. I was happy to be out of the hospital and home and see my daughter and see my wife. And so... I just think that the, you know, it's endless. I mean, I love looking at one of my favorite things is like just from a few nights of restricted sleep. And this is Sherry Ma's research. She'd be a fun one to get on the show if you could, if you could wrangle her. But her research showed that, you know, just after a few nights of restricted sleep, we become, you know, bench press drops by 30 pounds. We make three times more mental errors. We make less free throws and, and, and three pointers. And one of my favorite things to do when I'm meeting with a professional team is, you know, did you know with better sleep, you'll probably make something like 9% more free throws and three pointers. Then I'll pull up their last 10 games. You know, they've lost eight of the last 10, but give them 9% more points from three free throws and 9% more points from three pointers. Don't even look at the field goals, just the three pointers and the free throws. And I was doing that with the, um, the, it was the, the Celtics and the, whoever beat the Celtics, I was the Brooklyn Nets and the Celtics in the playoffs. And I was talking to them. I was like, you know, if you had 9% more free throws and 9% more three-pointers, you would have beaten the the Nets in that game if we just add that into your score. You know, so anyway, I, it's it's amazing. And so nobody's at the end of that game thinking, oh, gosh, guys, we're, we're so sleep screwed up that if we had just been more sleep, sleep better, we would have made more. You never know it because there's nothing to measure it against, which is why it's really satisfying as a sleep doctor to fix some of my sleep problems because they come back and like, I had no idea how badly mm-hmm. I felt until you fixed it, which to me is just so interesting, just how much we can absorb and adapt to as a human 
um, as long as the change is kind of slow. It's like an artery that's slowly closing off and you're building collaterals everywhere else in your brain. So when it finally, you know, strokes out with an embolism, they don't even know because Mm -hmm. they've slowly been getting ready for that adaptation. Uh, Humans are good at it, man, up, up until a point. I just want to say name dropping, working with the Celtics is like, this is why I said you're way over my head. I'm like, how am I talking to you? Anyway, that's besides the point. Um, well, one of the, clear, I don't I work with the Red Sox, not the Celtics, but we are using oh, the Celtics as an example. Got it. Got it. Still crazy. But anyway, um, one of the, I, we like to ask difficult questions on this podcast. Oh, and one good. of the difficult questions is with the social determinants of health, obviously some people are in an economic situations, societal situations where they have to kind of work, maybe multiple jobs that have stress at home. They've just a variety of circumstances that prevent them from getting a good night's sleep or a very restful sleep. They're just uh, waking up all the time because of stress, all these different situations. Is there any way to combat that? How do you kind of work around that to get better sleep if you are like set up not to have good sleep? Yeah, this is a very important question um, because there is a there, there is no pill for I need to work two jobs to make my mortgage payment. Exactly. So I think that there's a couple things. Number one, um, and number one is you deserve, no matter how many jobs you're working, to sit on your butt and watch The Bachelorette or play a video game or watch your favorite sports team, you know, in the World Series, whatever you like to do. I, I think it's important to recognize that. I remember one time meeting with the NCAA and they were like, this is the typical, you know, schedule for a football player and a swimmer. And I remember thinking, this is terrible. And they're like, see, the math works out. I'm like, well, yeah, but this doesn't have any, you don't give them any time just to hang out with their friends or their girlfriend to go play paintball or do anything besides be a student and be an athlete. And and I think we all deserve to have downtime. And there's this whole concept of revenge procrastination. So I think it's important to recognize that. And everybody needs to prioritize dad or mom's you know, crappy television show she wants to watch for an hour, you know, every night. That's, that's, she deserves that. I think outside of that, I always tell people, look, if you're feeling like, look, the best I can do is six and a half hours just because of my two jobs. I got two kids. I'm raising them by myself. It's a push, but I think I can be in bed by 10, but we have to be up by 4.30 in order for me to get my kids to my mother's house because that's where they're going to catch the school bus and for me to be at work on time. Mm-hmm. So what I always tell people is that that's okay. Number one, is your sleep that you're getting for those you know six and a half hours the best it can be? Do you snore? Do you stop breathing? Do you have restlessness? Because I think in that situation is very valid for that individual to have a sleep study. Because I want to be able to say to them, your sleep looks awesome. So we have no quality issue. We just have a quantity issue right now. Number two, I think it's important that individuals understand that that sleep debt can be made up. So maybe Monday through Friday is just a disaster when it comes to your sleep. But when Saturday and Sunday roll around, are you able to sleep in? Are you able to take a nap? Is there any way we can build that into the system? Number three, I think doctors sometimes have the problem of here's where you are and here's the ideal. And there's no middle ground. To me, it's like I smoke three packs a day. 
can I get you to smoke one pack a day? Sure. Well, that's great. I mean, I'd rather you not smoke, but getting you down to one pack a day seems to be a whole lot better than three packs a day. So to me, it's about what can we really do here in terms of improving your sleep amount or sleep circumstances? And then if in two months you're like, hey, Chris, I was able to build in an extra 15 minutes a night, which is an extra you know, almost two hours a week. I mean, those things add up over a month, a year, a lifetime. And then once you've done that, what can we do to kind of build in a little bit more? The final thing I will mention is there are medications that are FDA approved for shift work disorder. And it's a very real thing, particularly people who are 7A to 7P, then they're 7P to 7A the next week. And the week after that, they're back to 7A to 7P. Those are damaging problematic schedules that I would Mm -hmm. love to see disappear, but they're not anytime soon. Uh, So in the meantime, we as providers do have some tools we can use that are not making up for that sleep, but might prevent that individual from falling asleep behind the wheel of a car driving home for their second job. And I like that you mentioned uh, kind of medication, the pharmaceutical approach to sleep, because um, I want to bring that up as a sleep physician. And I guess as being in a hospital, a lot of times sleep medications get a really bad reputation just for being nasty drugs um, with side effects and kind of long term effects and whatnot. Um, so from your perspective, I guess, how effective are sleep medications and in what context do you kind of prescribe them? Are they something that you expect someone to be on for a long term or they kind of short term fixed while you're fixing someone's habits? Yeah, I don't have a very favorable view of them. I don't think they are very effective. If, you know, it'd be a fun, you know, podcast to do just a, an hour on the evidence behind sleep aids. I think that- <laughs> I'm down people, to do it if you have future time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it sometime. We'll do some research. It's really amazing. Like we can pick out, you know, most commonly I think prescribed sleep aid in this country is Trazodone, which is not even a sleep mm-hmm. aid. It's an antidepressant. Yeah. Ambien, you know, uh, uh, Valium or Clonazepam. Yeah. There's a few little, you know, melatonin is a hilarious one when you look at that one too. So I think most people, number one, would be extremely surprised to see just how minimal the effects are on people's sleep. Like, you know, fall asleep seven minutes faster, sleep an additional 11 minutes, maybe. Um, So a lot of these things are just kind of a psychological fix. It's something a doctor can do to make you feel better, but they're not really addressing the problem. Now, I think that for like the the person saying, look, I'm 7A to 7P, then I switch over, I have to do night shifts sometime, I'm back and forth, there's no rhyme or reason to my schedule. Uh, I think you can make an argument for that individual to have some sort of sleep aid and a plan for it. Okay, when you do that 7P to 7A transition, I need you to really get some AM exercise that first morning. I can't have you napping before four o'clock. And when it's time for you to go to bed the night before you transition back over to nights, I want you to take this medication. I think that's very valid. Or an individual who goes back and forth to Mumbai for business every, you know, twice, uh, twice a month or, you know, got to be miserable. But, you know, those kinds of individuals are like, look, travel is a big part of my life now. Um, I think there's, again, reasons to use those medications. What we really want to avoid is the, I can't sleep doc and I need this pill to sleep. Well, no, that's that's not a true statement. Let's let's build a therapeutic relationship on a fact, not a myth. Um, you may not be sleeping well. You may not like the way you sleep. You may find it takes you a little while to fall asleep. But you know the the idea that I have to sedate anybody to fall asleep is not true. I mean, sleep is as fundamental to our existence as breathing and drinking and eating. So, you know, I just wish we were we talked more about those things now. 
medications for specific diagnosed disorders may be different. A medication for somebody who has restless leg syndrome, a medication for somebody who has narcolepsy. Mm-hmm. These can be life-changing drugs for people. So I, we can't vilify all drugs, but the sleepers, the grandma takes these two pills at night to sleep. I, I'm not in favor of that. I think that's a that's a function of bad education uh, and, and really kind of bad medicine with our patients. Sure. Going hand in hand with that, we also have sleep assistive devices. So famously have the CPAP, um, continuous pressure, like support while you're sleeping. And then I guess there's other like people use nose strips and all those other, I'm not as familiar with many other sleep devices other than the CPAP, a case of mis or not misinformation, but, um, not having under, enough undereducated, right? under, undereducated. That's a correct word. Um, but kind of how does someone know whether they need a device? Is that something only a sleep medicine physician can do? Because um, like I was listening on the uh, Mark Bell podcast, a lot of those like power lifters, bodybuilders, you have like thicker builds and kind of self-medicate themselves with a CPAP. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so the answer to the question, do you have to be a sleep doctor to diagnose sleep apnea? Absolutely not. There's plenty of primary care doctors, pediatricians, uh, ear, nose, and throat doctors who do it and do it very well. Um, the big bottleneck there is getting the patient to the place where they get it. Um, and I think that in the past, there was a lot of m- misinformation and sort of scary information about CPAPs. You get addicted to them. Uh, they're like Darth Vader masks. They're ventilators. They're oxygen tanks with them. And no, all it is is a little air splint that just kind of props your airway open. Because sleep apnea is just mm-hmm. somebody whose airway is so collapsible that as they sleep, the airway collapses. And so now the brain has to decide breathe or sleep, but you can't do both at the same time. So individuals with sleep apnea wake up a lot during the night just to catch their breath. And unfortunately, they don't really remember it. So if you're waiting around to feel sleep apnea, it's never going to happen. What you're going to feel is a lot of fatigue and sleepiness during the day. My guess is, this is completely unscientific and breaking your rule being evidence-based, but it's my little guess, is that the average man in the United States waits three and a half years between somebody saying, either a doctor or a partner, there's something wrong with your breathing and it terrifies me and you stop breathing and choke and gasp and carry on. You should go see somebody. Between that being uttered, three and a half years before somebody does it. This is a rock, it's a rock off coefficient of three and a half right there. It's three and a half years before they figure that out, which is unfortunate because when they fix it, man, they, they're the first thing they'll often say is, man, I wish I hadn't waited. I hadn't, it was dumb to wait this long. I had no idea how good I could feel. And again, those things kind of creep in there. So CPAP is probably the most common way we treat it. There are oral appliances that dentists can make that tend to kind of pull your jaw forward and create a little bit more airway space. Uh, they work well for people with mild to moderate sleep apnea. Um, and then obviously they're a whole lot sexier than the, you know, the CPAP sometimes. And then there's surgeries, which really run the gamut, tonsillectomy, UPPP, the Inspire device that actually electrically stimulates the muscles to open up your airway. So there's probably more treatments than ever for sleep apnea. They're just not it's not a pill though. You know, it would be lovely if we had like a CPAP pill. You just take this every night and you won't have sleep apnea. But until then, and until obesity rates stop skyrocketing and things of that nature, we're going to have a lot of it. Um, some people can treat it by sleeping in a proper, like a position being off their back or their head in, you know, elevated a little bit. You know, uh, alcohol can be a big contributor. You know, some people only have it when they drink heavily at night. Mm. Uh, but outside of that, we're kind of left with the CPAP surgery or oral appliance. But, um, 
don't ignore it um, because from a preventative medicine perspective, it would be interesting to see of the different things that you could do to, you know, treat certain things. Like if a person is diagnosed with sleep apnea and puts a CPAP on at night, what preventative medicine score would that give them? I can't imagine many things being more preventative. Maybe like quitting heavy smoking or heavy drinking Mm -hmm. might result in a better life 20 years from now than, than a CPAP. But man, the CPAP's big and, and, you know, doctors can only do so much. Um, so we really need to grab on to these heavy hitter preventative you know measures when we can. And I, I'm, I've worn a CPAP for a month one time just to see what it was like. And I remember telling my wife, as soon as I have any degree of sleep apnea, I'm going to treat it. And it's interesting, Dale Bredesen, um, or Dan, Dan Bredesen, I think, I think it's Dan. He's a big time neurologist up at UCLA who's written a couple of books about Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Kind of controversial because he thinks Alzheimer's disease is something that we could virtually prevent if we were really aggressive about preventative measures, insulin resistance, sleep apnea, and not wait until you're shaking the walls of the house with your snoring before you finally treat it. Um, I'm not sure if those are right or not. I mean, he's very convincing when you listen to him, but I do believe that we could make a big difference with our future health if we just got on top of sleep apnea early. Definitely. And I like that you mentioned that um, you can kind of, uh, the preventive medicine uh, score, quote unquote, about these things. That's oftentimes why we kind of joke that our name is actually terrible because we should be the risk reduction podcast because you're still treating something. You're not straight up preventing sleep apnea because sometimes that might not be possible or it's just something that just happens for whatever reason because your training goals. The CPAP, using that as a modality of treatment can prevent a lot of things because it gives you good quality sleep and gives you more quantity of sleep. Yeah. And Something else that I also want to bring up, you don't necessarily have to comment on this because um, it'll probably increase the length of this podcast substantially. But um, I was just reading a Reddit thread, uh, I think yesterday or two days ago, where it was, uh, it was kind of a sad thread, unfortunately. We were talking about someone who went to go get a sleep study and then um, a CPAP machine, and it ended up costing them a very significant amount that their insurance didn't cover because of the way that the like primary care wrote something about it or the sleep doctor wrote something about it. So unfortunately, there's also healthcare uh, cost barriers and healthcare like insurance barriers to a lot of times getting these things taken care of. Um, so unfortunately, that's something we as physicians can't necessarily do. That's kind of more of like an institutional aspect or like a insurance reform aspect. But I just kind of wanted to bring that up as uh, in case some people think that it might I'm be sometimes a little difficult to get these things. I will tell you this, um, and I won't comment very long. One of the things I do talk about when I refer somebody to get an oral appliance for sleep apnea uh, is he's not only good at what he does, but he's good at the insurance aspect of it too. Like I, I feel like, I don't know how good a doctor I am. I think I'm okay. Um, but I'm really good at the insurance piece as is my office manager. So I think you bring up a good point. The way we do things impacts whether or not an insurance will pay for them. So it's like a little game, mm-hmm. you know, and if your doctor, if your doctor sends you to me, and doesn't write down that I talked to my patient about sleep apnea, 
And I don't pick up on that or my office manager doesn't. And I see you, charge you for my visit, do a sleep study, get you a CPAP. Your insurance can deny it all because your primary care doctor didn't do something. So it's important when you go see a sleep doctor to understand that you want to see somebody with a lot of experience in that. Um, And Tammy Sharon is my office manager and nothing gets past her. Like a lot of times she'll come in and say, I'm sorry, you couldn't see this patient today. You're three o'clock. I canceled him because he didn't have the right paperwork from his primary care doctor. That's what you want. And unfortunately, yeah, it's a, it's a game. But well, I'm sure I'm, that Reddit thread was real. Yeah, I'm now uh, pretty happy that I brought that up because if someone does have something like this, then you can make sure when you talk to primary care that that is written in the note so they don't get slammed with a crazy insurance bill. And there's um, always things you can do retrospectively. So if you don't know, contact an area sleep center that's been around for a while and they can probably help you navigate it. Sure. Um, I We're closing in on an hour on this podcast. I don't know how long you have. I'm good, man. Oh, great. Phenomenal. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I didn't want to skip this aspect. You just released the book, The Rested Child. You've been talking all about it. I have not read it. Unfortunately, I haven't had the time to. Like I said, it's on my list. But when you, when um, you have kids, you'll read it in a hurry. <laughs> I'll be the first book I read. Um, but you talked a little bit about uh, your own kids kind of when the COVID pandemic, when they were able to kind of adjust their sleep schedule and wake up at a later time. Um, they seem to grow more. Um, what are the dangers of children aside from that not getting enough sleep? And what can like parents do to navigate a school system, assuming that they're going back to school um, that isn't designed with their schedules in mind? Yeah, I wrote a whole chapter about that. I, I think that schools and technology are probably the two biggest obstacles between a child getting great sleep or not. Um, it's, I don't think it's parenting. Um, it's, it's those two things. I guess you could say, well, parenting involves rules about technology and whatnot. So I think it's harder than ever for kids to, to figure that out. I think it's tough for parents to identify sleep problems in kids. They don't look, I mean, you know, grandpa comes over and sits down on your couch and goes right to sleep. Well, that's pretty easy to figure out. Or grandpa nods off at every stoplight and you got to wake Oh, I wasn't asleep. I was just resting my eyes. Like grandpa, you were totally asleep during that stoplight. My God, <laughs> let me drive. You know? And so I think those are pretty, kids are different, man. Kids are resilient. They, they have a lot of little mechanisms and tricks for, kind of hiding bad sleep or the sleep looks the sleep problem looks like depression or anxiety or ADHD or school performance issues or irritability, whatever. And so I, I think that the biggest obstacle is really just education. And I think they did a study of, you know, pediatric residency programs, you know, looked at seven, you know, 200 residency programs and a quarter of them had no sleep curriculum. And then most of them only got about an hour or two of education. So it's tough when you're a parent looking for real help with sleep disorders Mm -hmm. and you're not in a place where you can get that. So I think that kids uh, parents really have to advocate for it. And if you feel like there's something going on with your kid, I wouldn't jump right to they're depressed because they always want to go to bed or they've got ADHD. I mean, ADHD to me is one of the most common misdiagnoses 
based upon a sleep problem. And if you don't think, that, you know, if you don't get that, you know, stay up really late, stay up till three o'clock in the morning tonight, get up at six, go to work, do your thing, stay up at three o'clock in the morning to the next night and do it. And then after two nights of sleep deprivation, sit down and take an SAT practice test. Like you'll feel like you're just an idiot. I mean, like, you'll bubble in the wrong things and it's hard to concentrate and read through the reading passages. I mean, it's tough to be academically and intellectually at our best when we've got sleep disorders and they're just tough to pick out. So that's, we see kids in our clinic. I've seen more than ever, especially during the pandemic, which is why I wrote the book. I felt like we talk a lot about how to get a baby to sleep through the night, but man, we just do not pay any attention to sleep disorders in that birth to college age group. And again, as somebody who sees adults, it's interesting how many adults, you know, 38 year olds say, you know, Chris, I'm coming here because my sleep's so bad and it's been bad ever since I was a kid. In fact, my mother used to tell me I was the worst sleeper ever. Like, wow, number one, that your mom would tell you that. Number two, why is it taking you 38 years to address something as fundamental as an awful sleep? You know, and again, we just we need to change that dialogue about it. You know, it needs to be like the blood coming out of your ear, like address it right away. Definitely. And it sounds kind of like a little bit of a subtext right here where that um, kind of children and adolescent um, individuals have a kind of different sleep schedule than adult counterparts. Um, I think we're kind of assuming that. Can you speak on that a little bit more? Is that true that they tend to sleep a little bit later and want to wake up later? Yeah. So that's another really interesting thing to me, which is basically looking at a child is their sleep and then the relationship with something like school. And then you know, at the end of your high school career, they've ranked you in the top 10%, get little fancy yellow things that go across your graduation gown. And a couple of people get to make a speech because they were the best student. And I always wonder, like, are they the best student or are they the best student under those circumstances of having to get up and do calculus at 8 a.m. and you're done at three o'clock? Most kids academically and intellectually peak around four o'clock in the afternoon. So we're already designing a school system that is going to favor the circadian the circadian advanced people, not those circadianly delayed people, which most young people are. I mean, we've got a school system set up really more for senior citizens. You know, they get up and have their breakfast at 6 a.m. and get the early word special and they're sitting down at seven o'clock for their class. I mean, they would love that, right? You know, most kids, if they could control the situation, man, they're rolling out of bed around lunchtime and have a little something to eat and classes start at one o'clock. So, I talk a lot about, you know, the way we can determine chronotype in a kid, ways you can adjust it, but also giving parents a little bit more of a language where they might be able to say to a school, my boy is a night owl. Is there any way he could take calculus at the end of the day rather than at the beginning of the day with Mrs. Ankrum? You know, like, can we, is there any option Mm -hmm. there? And there are options. You You might have to take it at a local community college or something like that. But, you know, I just think we want to make sure that our kids are doing what they need to do to get the right sleep, but we're also doing what we need to do to set them up to be successful. Definitely. I think that's uh, really important because kind of setting kids up to be successful is how you do a lot of other things for them, um, both academically. It helps set up their careers, um, helps them learn yeah, things, which be hugely beneficial, sets them up um, their habits. It'll set up their habits for the future. And it can also set up kind of their sleep habits relating to health. So let's say they start sleeping better as an adult. Now their health habits will be better and they'll be healthier on. So definitely all sharks would sleep. Um, if you guys are listening to this, I would highly recommend go reading that book. 
I usually don't recommend books if I have not read them myself yet. But from what you're speaking and from the rest of this podcast, I'll say right now, I'll just use it as a blanket recommendation. I'm going to give you full, I'm going to give you full options to read it later and be like, Oh man, (laughs) this was not a good recommendation. This is a terrible book. (laughs) So if you feel like you need to do it, but no, I think that parents and even people who don't have parents, it was really, I kind of wrote it thinking this would be a great book to read before you have kids. So you can really Mm -hmm. just educate yourself about how sleep works in kids. I hope it's funny and, 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 and educational and really kind of set people up for when you do have kids in your life, if you do, that you understand a little bit more about kind of what they're going through and what to look for to know that there's a red flag. Because like you said, if you can address these things early, it's so transformative to their lives versus, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll diagnose somebody with like narcolepsy when they're 31 and they always have this look like, oh my God, like I've had this, I think I've had this since I was in high school. I'm like, oh, I'm sure you have. And then, you know, they went to two years of college and then dropped mm-hmm. out and just thought college wasn't for them. And they'll say things like, I, I'm just not like college smart like that. And I'm like, oh yeah, you are. You're just unbelievably sleepy. So it was never a fair fight. It was like you trying to navigate college being like slip sedatives in your drink, somebody slipping sedatives in your drink. And now that you're awake, I've had adults go back to college because they're like, I had no idea you could feel like this. Like this is not at all what I felt like all my life. And, And I feel like I'm not incapacitated anymore. So it's always sad to me that, man, if somebody had figured that out, when they were young, Mm -hmm. it would have changed their life. And we know the average person with narcolepsy is going to take about 10 to 15 years to get diagnosed. Years, you know, definitely. again, that Rogoff coefficient, 10 years like (laughs) versus what erectile dysfunction takes you 38 seconds to figure out something's going on here. Wait a minute, there's something wrong. So it's like the absolute opposite of that. Well, when you put it like that, it's uh, it sounds like there could be a lot of unfortunate stories out there which could have been taken care of um, at younger ages. There are other unfortunate educating people. People like yeah. you are educating people, and it's getting better. All you have to do is ask the question. I promise you, no, nobody in our clinic is going to laugh at you for you know, man, what were they doing? We always think the opposite. It's like what took them so? In fact, I've asked yeah. patients the question: Why did you decide today? to mm-hmm. come see me. Like, what was it? What, what, I'm just curious. What was it after years of that thing that made you finally say, and I've had many people say, I heard you on a podcast. <laughs> so, well, hopefully, hopefully you know, this ends up being one of those podcasts. That, that podcast did the job, right? Like it, it yeah. changed somebody's mind that you don't have to sit there and struggle. Your kids may not have ADHD and need to be on all this drug. Like it might be their sleep. And most parents, kind of get that. They're like, yeah, I've always suspected there was something wrong with his sleep. But every time I brought it up with my doctor, they're like, no, nah, his sleep's fine. Wow. So whatever. Well, hopefully this podcast, we're able to provide some education, inform someone so that they're able to get something like this figured out. And that would be phenomenal if so, because that's what we're here set out to do with our mission. Um, and our listeners back home and you, Dr. Winter, are probably wondering why I haven't asked several other questions like um, sleep hygiene or all that. But that's because we actually have another sleep um, specialist, Dr. Jade Wu, who I believe you oh, know. I love Jade Wu. So we're going to use that as kind of part two to this. And we're going to ask a whole bunch of other questions over there. And then 
if there's still more to ask, we'll invite you or uh, Dr. Wu to come on again because there's just so much to discuss with sleep. There's so many questions because we don't really get this education. Physicians don't get it. We don't get it in grade school. We don't get it in high school. We don't get it anywhere. So we're going to try to answer as much as we can on this podcast, make this the sleep preventive medicine podcast. That's great. Well, so two things. Number one, I want to know whose episode is more popular, mine or Jade's? (laughs) And number two, I think we should have a... Dr. Wu, Dr. Winner debate on something. I don't know. If, if, yeah, I'd like to, to do, I'd like to, I don't know. If to That'd be a first for our podcast. Uh, Jade is, Jade is phenomenal. I really like her a lot. She's, she's, she's great. And, um, I think she's working on a book too. And so you have to ask mm-hmm. her about that. Um, I'm really sure. excited to hear what she does. We'll do. Well, for our, for our listeners back home, you can uh, expect that in about a week from when this podcast is released. So um, that'll be part two. But for right now, we're going to start wrapping this up. So our classic question at the end of every podcast is if you're at a Starbucks and you're waiting for your coffee, hopefully in the morning, not at night so that you're not trying to stay up. But um, if someone recognizes you and asks you, how do you get healthy? What do you tell them in the two minutes that you have while you're waiting for your coffee? I would say prioritize sleep and treat exercise like brushing your teeth. It's not optional and you have time to do it. Um, and if I had a little bit more time, I would say resist the urge to do more. There's nothing wrong with you, know, you used to run a mile. Now you want to run two. Now you want to run five. I find that sometimes you get to this place where you're like, oh, I don't have time to exercise. No, you do. You have time to run a mile, which used to be okay. But now that you're running more like 10, you feel like the one mile doesn't matter anymore. It always matters. So to me, I don't care what it is, but you do it every night. And if you're struggling, find a partner or buy a dog. The dog is unforgiving. He's like <laughs> blizzard, rain, dark outside. And he's like, let's go. We haven't done our run for the day. And so you put your headlamp on, which I took off right before I started talking to you and you do your run. So I think that those things are really important. Uh, uh, Nutrition is too, but that's hard. I thought you were going to ask me, here's another good question. I I would love for people who are on your show to ask you're in an airport. What do you buy quickly to eat and and be healthy? Like what's I'm always looking around trying to be like, okay, I'm going to build a bottle of water, but I try not to buy plastic bottles if I can. I'll one person yeah. doesn't make a difference. But I'm like, what's the – I would love to be in there and be like, <laughs> you know what's really actually quite good for you is this thing. You know, but this so, thing looks like it might be good for you, but it's terrible for you. So I always do the hummus and little chips because hummus is really nice to help you sleep. And, you know, chickpeas have got a lot of good, good nutrients in them. But I'd love to know the answer to that. So if you guys are listening to this, when we release this episode, go on our Instagram page. I'll have a poll out there and I'll ask this exact question. What do you buy at an I, airport? Oh, I love it. It's so great. we'll see what those answers are. I really want to know um, like, the, the, quick, the quick like meal replacement. You know, you're going to catch a flight yeah. in 20 minutes. You'll have a chance to get any food. So what, what are you eating? That's great. Oh, I love that. That's For awesome. Sure. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this podcast. I learned a lot because we don't get taught that much about sleep. Um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, Dr. Winter, being on. Um, Chris, Chris, yeah, hopefully, absolutely. Hopefully we can have you on again to talk about uh, that sleep medication, the evidence behind all those things. So I'll email you about that at some point. Um, but thank you guys for listening to this and uh, we'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you, Raghav. That was great. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.